Are you struggling to find the right broker to take advantage of opportunities in the market? Are you looking to trade commodities, shares, or even crypto? Even if you don't know much about trading, you can learn all about it by visiting Capital.com's website. That's C-A-P-I-T-A-L.com. Capital.com is a global trading platform with over half a million users. Visit Capital.com and start your trading journey today. I half jokingly say that we were running around with a PowerPoint, a promise, and a pile of dirt, right? I had a pile of dirt out in the desert saying, I can build here. I was like, no, 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 we've done our work. This will work. Believe us. Here's the design engineering work, blah, blah, blah. But we had, I had to gin up people to believe. And actually, it was really hard. As our world becomes increasingly digital, one can't but appreciate the people who work with their hands, like the cooks, the builders, the designers, the tailors, artists. I was very intrigued when I heard of Pure Harvest, a new breed of tech startups raising north of $50 million to build essentially a high-tech farm in the middle of the desert. It's an industry that we now call agri-tech or ag-tech. So I decided to reach out to Sky Kurtz, the company's co-founder and CEO, to learn more about the team behind the startup and also to learn more about the vegetables that we eat and where they come from. This is a really hot topic in light of COVID and also in light of living and eating from sustainable sources. Welcome to Conversations with Lulu. My name is Lulu Khazan. I am an entrepreneur living in Dubai, an investor a mother and your host. Sky grew up in the US in a small town of 450 people called Jerome. Now imagine how many turns his life would have taken and the choices he had to make to get to where he is today. This is something I've experienced firsthand, having grown up in a small town called Brumana, in the mountains of Lebanon. And like Sky, I had to make a conscious decision to change my fate, leaving friends and family in search for a bigger and brighter future. From an early age, he was adamant to be the first child in his family that graduates with a college degree. Fast forward to 2017, when Sky wanted to take pure harvest from an idea to building his first demo farm, or what we call a minimum viable product, an MVP, Sky went out pitching to local investors, and if you take a look at Sky's background and experience and even attitude, you'd think that checks would be handed over to him. But Sky really struggled to raise the money, but he wasn't about to stop. So within slightly less than a year, Sky was finally able to, as he said, will his startup into existence and secured his initial $5.8 million from 31 investors. Sky is on a path to build a unicorn. That's a business valued at over $1 billion. And as a result, he is taking on significant risk and responsibility. So I wanted to learn more about his attitude towards risk and how he developed his risk appetite throughout the years. I was watching my classmates from Stanford go build exciting things. And there are actually six unicorns out of my class at Stanford. So obviously it was it was quite uh, difficult to watch that. <laughs> um, They're was, under pressure. Uh, 
Yeah, I was, on, I was envious being like, what am I doing with my life? And honestly, really impressive classmates who built exciting things like SoFi, a north of 7 billion fintech company, um, Harry's Razors, you know, a number of businesses at my class. So I started to increasingly get the itch to do that. Um, and finally had saved up a bit of, of money, right, from my, from my years of working in the investment profession. And that's when I really started to, to head out on my own. And I would add one other thing. I mean, the, the businesses I built as an entrepreneur are coincidentally all in the same vertical or in ag tech. Um, when I was in a, a technology investor, I saw the real potential of technology applied to a kind of more traditional industry where I would say modern technology and really Internet of Things or IoT technology had not yet been adopted. So I saw a white space in it in a particular industry many years ago and got excited about trying to build something in that space that I thought could be impactful. Well, and then you decided, but out of everywhere in the world, you decided to build an Actec business here in the UAE in the, in the middle of the desert. It was a bit of, um, of uh, coincidence uh, discovering the opportunity here in a way. So let me let me explain that. I And I always thought I'd return to the United States. But um, I actually traveled uh, to the UAE. I was here on business helping to open up a manufacturing facility here in Jebel Ali. What made me stay, I guess, is that I, I met a woman who's now my wife. And, uh, you know, I, I got very serious about her very quickly. And I said, well, you know, I'll at least stick around to see where this goes, right? And uh, as part of that, while here, I started to really discover this, the, the dynamics of food here, right? And that this region imports to paint between 80 and 90% of its, its food, its calories. And that is a, I saw it as a huge opportunity. And coincidentally, I also met a Stanford classmate who actually, uh, it was my co-founder, Robert Koopsis, who had the original idea about taking, you know, uh, uh, high-tech uh, greenhouses, kind of making them into a hybrid growing system. And we'll talk about that later but essentially trying to transfer that technology and make it suitable for this incredible environment. Why I got excited about it, and maybe this is my training and background as an investor, is, uh, you know, of course, I think uh, it's commonly understood in startups, you have to solve a need, right? A very real pain Absolutely. point. But food security and, and importing all of your food is a massive pain point. But also for all of us who shop here on the shelves, if you're a consumer in the UAE, you have two choices, either local or, see, or regional, low-quality, seasonal produce, or very high-cost, always-available, air-freighted imports, right? But there's really nothing in between, no premium local uh, product. And whereas around the world, in, in America, certainly in San Francisco, that was common. And I was, I was shopping here at a Spinney's, realizing that, like, you know, strawberries are a status symbol. They are so f incredibly expensive that, yeah. uh, that, you, that you buy them rarely, right? But I wouldn't even think about it. When I was in San Francisco at Trader Joe's, I would just, you know, put my arm out on the shelf and throw it all in the cart. I started to say, wow, there's got to be a good market opportunity here. And then the last thing um, was, I, you know, and again, the investor in me, I started to look at what does this region have comparative advantage in? One of the things is oil, right? No surprise. But the other thing that we have an incredible amount of is sunlight. We have a tremendous amount of radiation and light, obviously, and that creates the heat. But light is the core raw material of food production. So if I believed that if you could control the climate using technology, using energy, you could um, harness all of that light and create tremendous output or tremendous yield that would then justify the capital investment to build a facility. With that thesis, with that kind of underpinning, yeah, I guess I would call it contrarian view, most people would think that actually this is a terrible place to farm, right? That, that would be the intuition. But as a, the, our, my view and, and ultimately our investors' view became that actually this could be one of the greatest places to farm in the world if you could control for climate because we have an abundance of sunlight 
an abundance of energy and getting cheaper, increasingly renewable, right? Big solar projects, a nuclear power plant that just came online. We have low cost and flexible labor markets. We have a 0% corporate tax rate. We have abundance of land at very low cost versus places like Europe or America and uh, transportation, right? We are within 100 kilometers of all of our consumers, the entire market, as opposed to air freighting from, say, 2,600 kilometers away in a multi-step value chain. So as you broke that down and looked at kind of the, I call it the Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations analysis, right? The, the comparative advantage of who should make high heels and who should make, you know, tomatoes. Well, when you break that value chain down, you know, th those elements I just described explain about 95% of the cost structure of farming. And I believed that if you could develop a technology to harness that, you could be one of the lowest cost producers in the world and make possible, you know, food security, water conservation, economic diversification and sustainability for the region. So you build and operate uh, your own farm and also you are growing a brand, right? So you have your own uh, pure harvest brand that is selling tomatoes and strawberries to supermarkets. So is there a specific reason why you opted to go for the, you know, owning the full value chain, basically? A very good question. Uh, the answer is yes. I believe the biggest problem wasn't tech, it was food, right? We don't have the ability to produce local premium quality, pesticide residue free, multiple variety food, right? There's many challenges in, our, in, our, in, in our, the quality and safety of our food. I also believe to farm at this level is incredibly challenging. It requires significant capital investment, significant uh, adaptation and development of technology, and highly skilled, highly paid agronomists, right? This region doesn't really have those factors. So there were a lot of elements we had to bring together to make this possible. It's not like what's I could make... The, what's an I'm agronomist? Sorry. Oh, agronomist. They, these are the people that are actually trained in, in, in growing crops, like plant scientists or plant science crop management, seed selection, the labor management within, they're, they're the true kind of green fingers within the farm. And they're highly skilled. And in fact, most of the best ones in the world come out of Holland. Um, so we, we saw that there was an absolute need to design, build and operate the, the, the farms. And then of course, market and sell the produce, partly because we had to sell a new value proposition to the market that premium local could be as good, if not better, and in our case, better than the European imports, right? And we would have to control that messaging, not hand our product to a distributor in existing uh, distribution channels without control of the message and of the brand and the relationship with the consumer. Because as you know, in this region, it's one of the only places in the world, you go into a grocery store and it's like Mexico avocado, you know, South Africa tomato. That isn't a grocery store in America. It says tomato and buried somewhere on there might be its origin, right? Not that it's marketed for its origin or origin-based pricing. Right. That's a very unique dynamic to this region. So we saw that as a market failure. Right. That's something we needed to address. So admittedly, there were so many market failures. We felt we needed to control every single one of them. Now, over time, though, I will say we design, build and operate farms, market and sell. But we are entering partnerships and we'll soon announce some. We don't believe we need to own the world here. Right. We want to own a piece of it. Uh, but and we, we, we kind of want to own a piece of the market that we believe we created but we're not here you know, trying not to partner. It's just early on, we needed to control every piece of that value chain to ensure that we could deliver our vision. And then in the future, you could potentially white label your, uh, your tomatoes. Absolutely. Uh, we can white label and partner with others who have established brands in big markets. We also potentially can, over time, transfer the technology, but I think we would want to maintain operation and of course the data, right? 
we, there's a tremendous amount of information collected in our farms that's extremely valuable to us. Not to For mention, our, we, we measure everything in the farm. So everything from the outside light that hits the farm, the, the actual joules of energy, the light transmissivity through our structures, and then the inside useful light spectrum to the plant, which is called par light. That, that we measure all of that, so multiple measurements just in the light, right? And how much actual light and energy are the plants getting? We then measure everything about the irrigation, everything about the climate, the movement of air, so pressure in, in the measurement of bar, the measurement of pressure. So if there is air, fluid, water, energy, or light moving through our greenhouse, it's measured everywhere. And the reason why we use that information to fully control the greenhouse. We pressurize the inside of the structure and we can control the fluid dynamics inside. And, and the actually, result? The, well, the result is a perfect and uniform climate within one degree C everywhere inside the structure. But like, in, terms it, of the, in terms of the food? Yeah, extremely high, extremely high quality, extremely tasty food. We also are able to grow new varieties that the region's never seen. So right now we're growing four varieties of strawberries of different types, both everbears and June bears. And we're growing uh, 26 different varieties of tomatoes. And, and I'm going to give an example. We, we grow a, a tomato that is a Japanese pink heirloom tomato called a Fujumaru. It's, it's never been grown outside of Japan, right? And once you control the climate, and in our structure, we have a perfect Mediterranean climate, 14 to 32 degrees C every single day. Those plants are in plant heaven every day, right? And we can grow just about anything. And, and what are just the main sort of differences between the traditional farming that you're doing with technology that's enabling it, that's making sure that the quality of the products is, is perfect. And, and what are the differences with the vertical farming, for instance, because we hear a lot about vertical farming now, and I've been hearing uh, about it as, a, as an investor as well. Well, let me start with versus field farming, right? What we fundamentally, vertical farms and high-tech greenhouses and any structure in which you grow food is called controlled environment agriculture as an industry. Within that, there are, in my view, kind of three uh, forms. There's vertical farms in the, in the traditional sense, a fully closed structure with artificial lighting. There's uh, high-tech greenhouses, which are very similar to vertical farms, but for the fact that they use natural light. They also grow vertically. And then there's uh, what I call repackaged vertical farms. So that can be a container farm, in-store farming. You know, when I say containers, when they convert a freight container into yes, a vertical farm, seen that. but these these are just repackaged vertical farms, very similar irrigation methods, technology, climate control, everything, just a new a new package size and structure. Field farming is traditional farming, you know, uh, in the soil and relying upon the elements. the ch The core difference is that one, when you're farming in soil, uh, you're exposed to the elements and exposed to pests, so you must use pesticides. A common misunderstanding, even in organic farming. People believe organic means no pesticide. 91% of people believe that. It is yes. not true. It couldn't be farther from the truth. Um, they use lots of pesticide. They just use organic approved pesticides. But you cannot not use pesticide if you're out in the open because we, uh, you know, insects love fruits and vegetables just as much as we do. It requires a lot more water, and especially in this region. And to give you a sense, you know, we'll use around 32 liters of water per kilogram of production. An incumbent traditional seasonal tomato farm uses 250 liters, right? That is what's going into one kilogram, a very low quality, very low value tomato. The water's worth more than the product, right? 
So that's traditional farming and, and some of its challenges. And the final thing I'll mention on that is that they're, sub, they're subject to the elements, right? Bad weather, storms, rain, lack of rain. Okay. However, in controlled environment ag, the, the, the first big thing is you, you control. You take it inside a structure where you're controlling uh, exposure to light. You can offer artificial light. You control irrigation. And most likely, like commonly when you invest in a structure, you'll move into automated irrigation systems. And there are many kinds, aeroponics, aquaponics, hydroponics. That is sort of what controlled environment ag is. But by controlling the environment, you give the, the plant the perfect environmental conditions, you feed it exactly what it needs, and therefore you get incredible yields, symmetry, taste, et cetera. But you have to invest in the technology, the people, the processes to run this. This is very analogous to a manufacturing environment. So can you, can you plant just about anything? Yes. Uh, so we maintain a Mediterranean climate corridor, 14 to 32, wow. with about 80% humidity, 75 to 80% relative humidity. In that environment, you can grow just about anything. Tomatoes, capsicum, cucumber, strawberry, aubergine, lettuce, microgreens, herbs, any form of berries. That's amazing because, I mean, we, we are much more, I think, as consumers, we are much more aware of these things and we want to be more environmentally friendly we want to we don't want to consume something that has you know was shipped uh, uh from like the us or you know uh thousands of kilometers across the across the ocean so i think it makes a lot of sense you know provided obviously that it tastes good because that's you know that's the other thing like speaking of strawberries uh i've been recently seeing some strawberries from the uk they taste fantastic They're they're so damn expensive, but uh, but uh, you know if if you're able to produce something locally that's uh, that's as good that would be great. So we we measure what's called the BRICS content, which is the sugar content of the sap of the plant, and we score anywhere from 20 to 50 higher than the Europeans. And the reason why they have to wow. pick it they have to pick it early to ship it here, so it survives the ride. We get to pick it right right and and also because of light. But um, Lily, you hit an important point about sustainability. We use very little water, as I mentioned, which is very important for the Gulf region, and we don't waste anything. Even the water created by our cooling systems, we yeah. capture the condensation and we put it in the irrigation system, treat it, and use it. We do not waste any energy or water in the entire ecosystem of our construction. We are carbon negative. Not only do we consume carbon that would have otherwise been released in the, in the, in the atmosphere, right? We, we purchase carbon from these producers it's treated to food grade CO2, like in a Coca-Cola beverage or something, okay. injected in our greenhouse. But we also displace the air freighting that would have otherwise delivered you food here, right? So that, that, that airplane would have burned a lot of jet fuel and a lot and released a lot of, you know, uh, carbon. So it's actually, it's actually environmentally friendly to be purchasing these local products. Absolutely, 100%. Well, this is uh, great to hear and I look forward to, uh, to tasting them. Uh, and I wanted to ask you a little bit about your um, your entrepreneurial uh, experience. You've partnered, you've told me earlier that you had partnered with some of your Stanford uh, classmates. You've picked probably, uh, you've also picked a great advisory board. I've seen it on your uh, your uh, uh, company information. So, so you know, you're, you're a mature entrepreneur. You've, you've done this several times. So can you, can you tell me how, You know, how were you or what was what were you thinking when you were putting these people together? What were you looking for? A very good question. I mean, my it might have been my heritage as a private equity investor, right, where we we typically look at a good market 
find a good business in that industry, but then we're fundamentally backing management teams, right? And that's true of venture investors as well, right? They almost usually would rank the market first, the management second, and then the company third, because a great team will outperform when you have a bunch of companies competing for the same thing. The reason I mention that is I think a lot of entrepreneurs hear that, but they don't really internalize it, that how critical getting the right people is to deliver your plan. Because the you know best laid plans, if you can't, if you don't have great people to execute against them who are aligned to the vision, it's very, very hard. So if you 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 asked about the people I recruited, right? Um, every single one of them had a purpose, right? Um, in in my co-founder, Mahmoud Adi, right? We had we got an Emirati national, which we needed admittedly for securing a farm and for understanding the region to localize our knowledge. I was not from here, right? I had a lot to learn. Also, he was a Mubadala executive and well-connected in the investment community. He was entrepreneurial, had gone to Stanford, so I had a network to do diligence and trust him before I founded a business with him, right? So that's an example of one of them. Another, our chairman of our board, David Scott. David, um, what we, the reason we went after David and ultimately we were grateful to recruit him to the company is he's done huge-scale infrastructure projects in the region. David's background, he, he was the White House National Security Advisor to the Middle East, North Africa, fluent in Arabic and multiple dialects, and a senior advisor to the governments in the region and specifically to the UAE government at Abu Dhabi. But he was part of Occidental Petroleum leading the Dolphin Pipeline, the largest ever natural gas project in the world, and it was a cooperation of seven countries. And then secondly, he was uh, part of the leadership that helped to lead the nuclear power plant here that began about 13 years ago and very recently turn on the lights, right? That 26 billion capital project negotiating peaceful nuclear power to the Middle East showed me that this guy knows how to get big scale infrastructure done, work with governments, non-market strategy and policy. So I targeted him to first get his advice and then to ask him to be part of this company, right? And now he's the chairman of our board and a bit of a mentor and a, and a confidant uh, for, for me. How do you get someone like that on your board? It well, must be pretty, <laughs> pretty persuasive. Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, it helps to, it helps to do your homework, right, and prepare. Uh, there's something, I, 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 you know, I'm, I've mentioned this to other people in the past. Often, you know, I, I remember speaking at Jitex once and some younger entrepreneurs approached me and asked me, hey, you know, how do you get your business funded and how do you get going? And I start asking them questions about like, well, what have you done to validate the need? How much work have you done in your business plan and study? How many people, how many customers have you engaged? And, and the answers quickly fall apart, right? There is no shortcut. You have to do a tremendous amount of work up front. And, and I think I mentioned to you this personally, Lulu, I'm a big believer you have to invest in your own business. You should not be taking other people's money if you wouldn't put your own money and your own, you're obviously putting your career, but I mean your actual hard-earned savings. And I don't mean everybody has to have money. Whatever's proportionate to your savings and wealth but you should not be taking other people's money if you will not eat your own cooking. And I find that often there's entrepreneurs who, who are happy to take significant risk and kind of take a flyer on a business as long as it's other people's money. And so that was one thing when you asked about how I had spent, you know, the better part of seven months flying around the world, diligencing, designing, engineering this technology all on my own money without a salary and invested, you know, 40 or $50,000. My co-founders invested heavily we were the first 200 some odd thousand in the company, all of us, all of us out of our families, out of our savings, et cetera. In my case, out of my savings. And that I think gave people a lot of comfort to engage with this company. Hey, these guys really believe what they're doing. Obviously we had credible backgrounds, but then last and, and, and most importantly, we had done a tremendous amount of work to be able to evidence every element of our business plan. 
And certainly things have gone wrong, but I'll be honest, overall, we are executing against the plan that we laid out several years ago. Now, timelines move, things have gone up and down, and of course there are challenges, but fundamentally we thought about exactly what we were going to try and build and did a ton of homework before we approached anybody to recruit them to our project. What were some of your uh, major challenges, let's say, in the past, you know, since, uh, since 2017? Well, since launching, I'll, I'll even mention before launching, the first challenge was raising money, right? And it, it is a tough region to do it. I think it's tough anywhere in the world to raise money, but it is hard here. And especially for a new vertical, ag tech, we were the first, right? Asset intensive, onshore and hardware, right? We're an IoT enabled farm. Name another hardware business in the entire GCC, right? There's like a handful. Um, Almost everybody in this region invests in internet startups and e-commerce, right? And 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 Absolutely. some media, some whatever, but mainly that. What what did investors say to you when you were raising? Yeah, the the, the most frustrating objection that I got was uh, one of the investment firms here said that this is not tech, and I I kind of lit up on them and said, you, you know, you invest in internet startups. You know, many of these are just websites with a payment processing engine. Our company has hundreds of sensors deployed inside of of, of a complex environment with a centralized computer algorithms controlling all of this hardware. And that isn't tech. I mean, I, I kind of lost it. And honestly, I think that it, it's, it's a young uh, venture capital environment here. But, but honestly, even looking at my background, where I worked at a prestigious technology investment firm in San Francisco, I just found it you know, frustrating, if not offensive. Uh, so I, uh, that was one that lit me up. And, and honestly, where I'm hoping this region, as, it, as, as the uh, ecosystem matures, that they start to invest beyond kind of internet or, you know, tech 1.0 uh, ventures, right? And increasingly it's happening, guys like us and some vertical farms and all, but there's also so much entire pieces of technology segments that don't even exist here, right? It's it, the core of it is internet startups, some media and uh, e-commerce, right? It has to do probably, you know, with the size of the investment, as you said, I mean, for you, you needed $6 million just to just to put a proof of concept up, uh, that six is million dollars, you can go a long way with, like, let's say, an e-commerce startup. Uh, yeah, but even e-commerce e is capital intensive. They have to invest in all the inventories until they can eventually finance true. them. It is true. very capital. Look at look at Mum's World. Look at all these. So actually, yes. I think it's just a lack of understanding. E-commerce is retail, and they get that right. Look at these malls, as opposed to it's it's retail with a website and, and a payment processing engine. It, it's it, it's just a new form of goods distribution, right? Which is wonderful and a great market. Look at Amazon. However, yeah. I think though that some of these other areas of technology, investing in hardware, wearable tech, these things yeah. aren't super capital intensive until they're successful. You can build small MVPs and prototype on an Arduino board, right? Well, maybe um, because uh, we, we don't have these specialized funds here, right? I mean, most, right. most funds are sector agnostic and most of them, uh, you know, their their first ticket is what two hundred thousand or or half a million top. Agreed. That's what I mean about it being a young ecosystem. And I also think you sort of need people who know hardware to get comfortable investing in hardware. So you need you, you need that effect that happens when people when entrepreneurs are successful and then send the elevator back down, right? And and that's happening now. Look at Kareem. All the millionaires that got minted from this success, a lot of them are either entering other companies or investing in other companies. That's how Silicon Valley got started, right? Silicon Valley was built by people who built great businesses and then began to became the venture capitalists, right? And they understand the entrepreneurial journey. They understand the technology and how to build a company. That is beginning to happen here and it will get better. And the, and the other thing on Kareem, I mean, we just hired two ex-Kareem executives, right? It, it, it's They're starting to spill into the companies and bring the knowledge from that success. That is how this ecosystem will take off. We've had a hell of a time raising money, uh, but... 
I, that's that's unbelievable, by the way, that you're saying that with your background in investment banking and, and investing in the U.S. and you're a you know a top-notch standard uh, Stanford uh, MBA and and it's amazing and you had a hard time. Yes, I mean, it was fundamentally a tough business to raise for because it was it, it, the hard part for what we were doing is it's not like I could build a two hundred thousand dollar MVP and then say oh look at the great this was the MVP this build. And I had to raise $5.8 million to do it, right? So I, I jokingly, I, I half-jokingly say that we were running around with a PowerPoint, a promise, and a pile of dirt, right? I had a pile of dirt out in the desert saying, I can go here. And that's all I was selling to people. I was like, no, 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 we've done our work. This will work. Believe us. Here's the design engineering work, blah, blah, blah. But we had, I had to gin up people to believe. And actually, it was really hard. I mean, we raised... I raised 5.8 million, which at the time was the largest ever seed financing in the Middle East. But what was challenging is that it was 31 investors, right? Can you, you know how many, wow. you know how many people I had to talk to and how much it was 50,000 from this guy, 250 from that, 400 from that guy. So you uh, really hustled, huh? Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, will, I, I call it willing it into existence, right? I just said, no, this, this should and will happen. And what is happening now, right, with COVID? you know, sort of waking the governments and the region up to the importance of the domestication of pieces of your food supply chain is what we dreamed would happen two years ago. It just took longer than we thought. And it took an exogenous event to drive the awareness. But this this sector is now extremely hot and people are waking up to the potential in the Middle East for this. And not just the potential for food security, right? But for economic diversification. Instead of exporting your billions of dollars of, into yeah. buy foods, you can invest those locally, create jobs, sub-industries that serve our industry, transport companies, packaging companies, right? This is as a multiplier. And I think that the governments really get that, right? Especially in light of the fact that when COVID struck, we not only had a, a, a pandemic, which shut down pieces of the economy, but we also had an oil price shock, right? So a double whammy. And, uh, and I think that the governments that really said, hey, this, this is one of the tools we can use to diversify the economy while solving food security, et cetera. So you asked about challenges, though. I covered financing. And then I was going to say another one I think that has been really hard is, of course, it, like, it is really hot right out in the desert here and building the first one, right? We had a very small team, a shoestring budget. Because even though $5.8 million, that's not a lot when you're building a 1.5 megawatt power transformer upgrade an entire uh, uh, high-tech farm that produces over 600 tons a year, right? All of the machinery and equipment and people and personnel, pre-production pre burn working capital, and currency movements are happening in the euro, and it was challenging. And we we had to use duct tape and bubble gum to get it done. And in fact, myself and some of the employees went, uh, which my partners are amazing in this, went you know as much as 10 months without a salary. It has been hard. And I, I want to give a hats off to my partners, Jan, my, my head grower, my agronomist, and Mashad Halawi, who joined me in the beginning, um, the three of us going out to that farm when it's 51 outside, um, cracking whips. It's in the on desert, water. right? It's in the middle of the desert in Nahel, and uh, literally nothing around. And uh, it's, it, it's on its own, but cracking whips on suppliers, dealing with problems. I mean, we even had, for instance, one of the tarps came off of something, and it was so hot that the, the sun melted this specific piece of equipment. We then had to wow. emer emergency order a piece of, I mean, these types of challenges that, you know, are kind of on the ground, tip of the spear, things you face. And, uh, and that was not easy. You're, I mean, I can see you're, you're a big fan of learning, right? You, you, you're the type of person 
I, I sense it that you love to learn, you know, how to do things. You were in cattle fencing, virtual fencing, right? Before, yes. before. How do you think about it in your mind? You know, when you're when you're in this like ideation phase, how do you say like, okay, I want to build an an ag tech business, so I'm gonna go and learn all about it, or I'm gonna like hire the right people, like. What goes on in your head when you're when you're in the early stages of this? You know, uh, well, one, I'm a, I am indeed a huge nerd. I love to st- I love to study and learn and read. And I think uh, something about my background, right? I I, I grew up in a very uh, low income family, one that had a lot of challenges, and I saw education as my way out, right? As as li- to liberate me and to give me opportunity in the world. And and my hometown is like 500 people, right? Hence, I'm named Sky. It's a tiny tiny town in the middle of nowhere in Arizona. And um, and so I saw education as a big way out and admittedly studied like crazy. Right. I mean, I was a, I was, you know, a strong student in high school. I was valedictorian of my university. Uh, so I studied hard. I, I've been a huge nerd for a long time. Did your family like push you to uh, to be a good student? I mean, you know, you could have gone in any direction if you come from a town of 500 people. Right. Yeah. I mean, no, I, I would say they supported me. But no, I, I sort of had this drive. My parents even talked about when I was quite young, you know, seven, eight years old. I would even want to go to school if I was sick. You know, I found it to be the greatest place, you know, and I wow. found I found it as a big opportunity. I also, um, I, I personally just believe that education is, is so important to me and it's something I want to be part of. Like at the end of my life, I think I'd like to be a teacher. I remember there's a famous quote by a gentleman named Lee Iacocca, the guy who saved Chrysler, Dominic Chrysler in the, in the 80s. And he said, in an ideal world, all would aspire to be teachers and the rest would have to settle for something else. And um, and I honestly, it stuck with me, and I've always believed it. Teachers were a huge part of my life. Education's a big part of my life, and and, and I'm a big reader. There's a famous book by um, called Lattice Work by Charlie Munger, the partner of Warren Buffett, and I I think it's a great read. And what's great about it is Charlie says when he was asked about why are Warren and I so special at investing, he said it's because we're we we love to know everything, and particularly Charlie does, and he studies everything from physics to computational fluid dynamics to philosophy. And then finds the commonality in that knowledge to apply to whatever he's looking at. And I thought when you read this book, he talks about how the lattice work of knowledge that makes you a more informed decision maker, what he calls a critical analytical thinker. And um, I actually believe that that, you know, I, I, had, I really bought into what he said about why they were special on that. And I'm someone who likes to do that. So I, I try to find the commonality in the industries, not the differences. And, and there's, there really are more commonalities. Most companies have a lot of similar functions. They have R&D, they have sales, yeah. they have marketing, they have, the needs are more similar and more transferable than they are different. But, but the piece that I think that you really have to do to jump into a new industry well is as quickly as you can, you have to become what I call authentic. You have to really engage with the people who know, like my grower. This guy has grown up in tomatoes. He even named his son Tom. Right. So I, I, you, you have to you have to embrace these sources of knowledge that are so deeply focused and so authentic. And then you have to be a student. Right. You ask questions and you engage and you learn. You be a sponge. I also traveled to a lot of greenhouses all around the world, studying how they were designed. They were built, asking questions of the growers in, in Mexico and in, in Australia and Holland and then reading everything I could from both universities, books, et cetera. So I think you have to be a really hungry student to be able to really become authentic in a new industry. You have to ask, I guess, is what you're saying, right? You've traveled the world, you've met all these interesting people and you had the courage to ask them to join your boards. 
you had the courage to ask him to join your team uh and and i think that's you know that's a, that's a big part of it as well right sometimes yeah. we're too shy to even ask and and have the humility to say it's okay i don't know how on earth would i i mean you know i i grew up in a desert as well in arizona i didn't see a lot of tomatoes um but the the other thing i would say is that i think that um i think a lot of entrepreneurs believe that you have to be great at everything in fact um there's a great book also called what got you here won't get you there yeah and an important lesson in that is that it's actually you can't be great at everything so what you should do is realize what you're great at and go be even greater at that so you have to specialize and instead accept it terrible at some things and hire people that are great at that instead hire a team that complements you find the knowledge sources for what you don't know find the, if you if 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 legal and government relations is a big piece of your business find a great person who knows that right if in our case agronomy find a guy who lives in in greenhouses and even um finding you know one of uh, one of my faults i would say is that i am not inherently organized I think I have to it's something I have to fight against all the time. I'm kind of want to be everywhere at the same time. I'm probably You are everywhere at the same time. How many <laughs> I mean, how many boards do you set on today and addition to running your own business? Well, I remain on two and uh, and uh, but I used to be on four last year. I was I, I've been consolidating. So yes, I, I was everywhere, but but maybe overextended too. I think that's a problem. Balance is something I'm still working on. But I would say um I think that you have to uh you have to find the people that complement you. go be great at a few things and accept you're terrible at some of them instead of you know if you're in your 30s you're probably a bit late to go be great at that other thing otherwise you're going to distract from what your company needs you to do which is be great at what you're great at yeah and you you said something to me uh, earlier on uh, when we were talking the other day and you said that there's so much information out there right and people are just too lazy sometimes you know they don't want to do the work to go and learn i mean you gave an example right the startup school startup class yeah by Sam Altman uh, absolutely so so Sam um, Stanford approached Sam Altman and said could Y Combinator do a class at Stanford and what was awesome about Y Combinator and their culture is they said sure we'll do that but you have to democratize access to the content you can't have it only available to the elite expensive Stanford students right that was cool now that class and with Ron Conway the maybe the greatest angel investor in the world teaching financing and with Sam Altman talking about go to, you know MVPs product market fit etc the kind of building blocks or what I'd call the mini MBA of entrepreneurship is publicly available totally for free they should charge $20,000 for this right the content is so good but i ask people hey you know you want to get how do you get into a startup how do you learn how to do it because you think you have an idea go do that course and then literally 2 months later find out how many have done it nobody like almost nobody because i don't know what it is i mean there is no shortcut that that content should be once you even learn it's freely available you should be obsessed that you must have it right and if you don't have that 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 kind of hunger and drive for the knowledge and the tools to make you succeed you might want to reconsider founding a company and instead join someone else's so how do you have you have you reached to a point where you're able to define success for example a lot of people ask me like how do you define success and uh, and sometimes i struggle with the answer so i've decided to ask all my guests Uh, on the podcast it's easier that way <laughs> well you know what i'm i i actually would i believe that your definition of success changes throughout the arc of your life and i think through into my 30s like i i never planned my life after an mba i mean if you had asked me at like 14 i knew i wanted a master's degree a degree an advanced degree because i wanted to set a new standard for my family right i was the first to graduate college in my in my family 
And I wanted that not only would I graduate college, I would either get a master's or a PhD and then ask my kids to follow in that, in that, uh, you know, uh, light. So, um, that was my goal, my obsessive goal through, and that, that ended at around 31. I then kind of my thirties, it was like, I want to, I want to go earn and go build something and, and, and grow in my career and learn. And that was exciting. I, I think I was, I was placed on my first board at 28 or 29, but by 31, I finally knew what I was doing, right? I was a student for the first couple of years. And then I started to be able to help drive companies, support them in strategy, enterprise transforming events, financings, et cetera. And then I wanted to apply those skills to my own businesses, right? Which now we've done. I think now I'm 38. I just had my first child, a daughter. And now my, I'm starting to think that my new definition of success is how do I continue on a, on a great arc in my career, but find balance in my life? I have not been balanced, right? Uh, my, my successes and my path has come at a, a great personal and uh, cost and also to people I love. I, my, I, I struggle with time. I certainly overwork. I struggle with balance. And I've even had some personal health issues as a result of it um, and some personal challenges. So I think my new definition of success for, for my 40s will be about how do I continue in a demanding and exciting career doing great things, but start to really invest in other people and let them do the work, right? But support them and and learn how to give away my Legos, right? And then also um, to be there for my family and for my daughter, right? I don't want to be some successful absentee father. I don't think that that's a successful thing. So yeah, I think- but that's very, very challenging, right? I mean, it is. You, I mean, you know, you know firsthand how difficult it is. Uh, you know, I've experienced it founding my own company uh, you know, now that I've exited from Nebish, uh, my husband and I sometimes sit around the table and talk about like, what's next? And he tells me like, don't go find another company. <laughs> he's like, he's like, you forget it. You know, it's almost like when you have a baby, uh, and then you forget how painful it was. And then you have another baby. Uh, I'm talking like the physical part and it's the same thing with the company. And he told me like, you forgot how many like missed holidays and missed weekends and evenings that you were working and so on. And, yeah, I mean, you love it so much. That's the difficult part. I mean, you love it so much. It's not like someone's forcing you to do it. But but I but I can't imagine like someone being mega successful. And I'm talking, you know, Nabish wasn't like a, a mega success, but um, the Kareems, for example, that have sold for three billion dollars, or or Souk, or or these guys. I mean, how how could they have balance? Is it possible? I would say, yeah, I think there are people that are highly highly successful and. Um, and and still have some semblance of work-life balance. I also think that after you've built an, uh, one company or two, you get better at it, and you start to mm-hmm. learn to you start to learn to work through other people. You also avoid like if I rebuild Peer Harvest today, I would have avoided a lot of challenges, right? I mean, there are a lot of things I learned through doing it, um, and so I think that you do start to avoid some of these challenges that that really uh, lead to the unpredictable demands on your time. Now, it'll never be perfect. You're right. I think you, if you, if you want to be an obsessive person who builds big and exciting things, you've got to invest a lot of time and energy. But you also can invest a lot of time and energy in working through other people. And I think that's something that in really growing as a manager and as a leader, I think that's something I need to focus on in the next 10 years. And then I, I guess you asked on success. I think in the later in my life, and hopefully if I've accumulated some wealth by then, It'll be about how I take care of other people, right? My family, um, there's still a lot of uh, people, financial hardship in my family. And I want to I give back. And also, I call it sending the elevator back down. But I want to kind of try and inspire, um, inspire people from maybe challenging socioeconomic uh, uh, backgrounds 
to get educations and to get out. So I think education will be a big cause and, and funding education. Um, I remember you were at one point you asked me about like, if I had a magic wand, what would I change? And, and um, I think I would make education available to everybody, everybody in the world, because I think it is so unfair that somebody can just be, you know, born in the, in the wrong geography or family and not have a chance. And, and this story really moved me. I was in Cambodia and taking a tuk-tuk, you know, this, this gentleman who rides the bicycle and you ride in the back. And this tuk-tuk driver was like the happiest dude I'd ever met. And what was shocking is that I, he had lived through the Khmer Rouge, right? A third of his people slaughtered by a, a, a crazy dictator. And, and it, he had lost, I, I asked him in the Khmer Rouge, like, do, how, he's like, yeah, I lost about 60% of my family. I mean, this guy had like lived through horror. Happy as heck, warm and charming, riding me all over. Like we didn't want to ride with anyone else. I asked him, I said, you know, what is, he said, I love Americans. I love America. And I'm like, what do you love about it? And he's like, you guys can go to college and you can borrow to do so. He's like, I have six kids and I have to choose which one of them I think is smartest for us to invest in that child to go to school. And then they're going to have the burden of taking care of all of us. Right. And he was doing that. His third son, they believed was the right bet. And, and his son now has all the pressure to try and get some break out of their poverty. That is just super sad, right? And I think that, and, and when I hear Americans complaining about student debt and crap, I'm like, that is a privilege. You have a system that will even trust and lend to the possibility you might ever earn and pay it back, right? It's a wild, entitled, ungrateful tone. And so I think that democratizing access to funding for education, so that, because half of these people would be so happy to go pay it back if they just had the chance to be, to for somebody to believe in and invest in them, right? Because that's what they're doing. That's, when you lend someone money to go to school, you're investing in them. And so I think that I would like to do something later in my life that does that, right? When you asked about success, something that makes that opportunity available to as many people as possible. And then they've got to go fight for their existence. They've got to go earn it. But I believe many of them would if they were given the right chance and the right opportunity. What has the birth of your daughter uh, changed in you or taught you? I, it's made me realize how impatient I am. I think I'm learning, I'm learning patience. Um, it's making me appreciate the smaller things. Like I, <laughs> for example, I took for granted that I could, I'm, I'm kind of a coffee fanatic. Maybe uh, you can tell by how quickly I speak. Um, and I, I, I would, <laughs> I was, uh, <laughs> I was, uh, I, I would make myself like, you know, some nice coffee in the morning, uh, you know, froth milk and et cetera. Now, if you have a, the baby up and you're trying to hold her, you can't work this hot machinery and stuff. So when you have that cup of coffee, you're like, ah, oh, like that moment. <laughs> And so I, I think you start to appreciate the small things around those, the challenges that compete for your time. And also, I think lastly, but it, it's made me a bit hopeful. I have this very, it's funny, I, when I thought about bringing a kid into the world, and at times I'm quite, it's quite hard, right? And with all of the, we're so aware of all the challenges in the world. And, and um, uh, you know, I think media maybe at some times has, has made it harder to be happy in the world. Um, but and so I thought at times, like, is it really even right to bring someone into this planet now and with climate change and God knows what she'll face in her life. But now that I have, I've, I've actually find it the opposite. I find it really hopeful. I'm like, wow, you get to shape this person and yeah. then ho hopefully shape them into a really good one that does good things and, and, and is part of this kind of, you know, arc of life. And um, and so I don't know. I think it's giving me a it, it's opening my perspective and, and also teaching me patience. And I think the other thing is it's made me really admire my wife. Um, her, I was so proud of her through the delivery. It was a really challenging delivery, and we had to, she had to be hospitalized. And, and then how quickly she adapted to caring for this little life. It was a big change, right? 
and even breastfeeding and all these things. I mean, it, women got to go through a lot. And I think I think that I think that my uh, my my feminism uh, uh, spectrum has just grown significantly uh, because I, I I greatly appreciate everything she's done and also how fast she's transformed herself um, to be a great mother. You, you had showed me a photo of your uh, of your daughter earlier because that photo was like phenomenal. She is super <laughs> cute though, and and uh, yeah, her name her name is Elest, or we call her Ellie. Thank you so much, Sky. I uh, I really appreciate you taking the time. I love listening to your insights. I learned so much about agriculture from you. So thank you very much of course. for sharing all this information. I, I wish you all the success. Uh, you deserve it. And uh, and look forward to see more photos of, of LS maybe in the future. Well, uh, it, but her and tomatoes. And I'm, I'm even thinking about dressing her up as a tomato for, uh, for uh, Halloween. Uh, but yeah, th- yeah, thank you. Thank you, Lulu, and also. I'm um, glad you didn't call her Tom, like your uh, <laughs> no, like your colleague. <laughs> I, I guess I'm not that bought in yet, uh, but okay. but no, I want to thank you, and also uh, congrats on the show, and and thanks for having me thank be part you. of it. And for everyone who's been listening, this was uh, episode 12 of Conversations with Lulu with the Sky Kurtz of Pure Harvest. Thank you so much, everyone, for tuning in. I hope you found it beneficial. If you like the episodes, please subscribe on all podcast platforms or on YouTube for the video. Until the next time, everyone, please stay safe and take care. Bye-bye. Are you struggling to find the right broker to take advantage of opportunities in the market? Are you looking to trade commodities, shares, or even crypto? Even if you don't know much about trading, you can learn all about it by visiting Capital.com's website. That's C-A-P-I-T-A-L.com. Capital.com is a global trading platform with over half a million users. Visit Capital.com and start your trading journey today.